listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show set out to bring you news, interesting topics and interviews with people mostly from Europe, building bridges and breaking down language barriers to show the world how active and awesome the skeptical movement is in the region. This is episode 365. I'm Annika Harrison and with me is my co-host Pontus Bergmann. Hallo! Hey son, hey son, 365. Yeah. Imagine that. that. Now you can listen to one episode for every day <laughs> of the year of this uh, podcast here and without repeating one episode. That's, uh, I don't say I'm recommending it, but it's possible. <laughs> Isn't that the dream of every podcast listener? <laughs> yeah, I, I hope for some. I hope for Especially some. because in the year you need to do that, <laughs> we are producing more. <laughs> right, yes. Yeah, this is the last chance you have to do that. Yeah, right. Next week, you'll have to line up two episodes for one day. So, mm -hmm, last exactly. chance. <laughs> All right. So, we had some listener feedback. From the eminent Sirdar from Turkey. We met him at QED. Very mm -hmm. nice fellow, very nice guy. He also were, he had a talk at Skeptic Camp. And, and we talked also uh, individually. Very nice guy, very nice guy. But he mm -hmm. had a correction on something that I said last week. And it was off the cuff. And I even said so at the time. I wasn't exactly sure what I had read. But I said that I had read somewhere that Turkey had moved three to five meters All of Turkey had just moved in the big um, earthquake. Mm -hmm. And it's not quite right. Uh, Serdar got in contact via Twitter, and you can do so as well. And he commented that it was not the whole country, in fact. Just the fault line, and in some places, had moved that much. So, so if you imagine two plates... Um, now I'm showing this with my hands, which doesn't work on a podcast. But if you put your hands together side by side, and you move the one hand, not three meters, because that would not illustrate the point very well. Anyway, at the fault line between the two continents, because I also learned uh, somewhere places. So now I'm again off the cuff saying that Turkey apparently is a little uh, continent in itself. Or it, not the continent, but it is a, uh, a tectonic plate, a micro or mini tectonic plate. And anyway, it has now moved relative to its neighbors. And along the fault line, there was a three to five meter shift in some places. That makes a lot more sense, I think, than that the whole country was moved to the left or whatever. Yeah. It, yeah. And I shouldn't make light of this. This is, of course, a terrible tragedy. So I'm sorry mm -hmm. for sounding like this is a fun thing. It's not mm -hmm. a fun thing. But at no. least now I know a little bit more about mm -hmm. tectonic plates. I know a little bit more about Turkey. And I got to hear from Sardar, which is always nice. Mm -hmm. mm. And exactly. also I found out... Indirectly, of course, that he was okay, which was nice to see. Mm -hmm. he, at yeah. least he was on Twitter, so he, he was fine. Yeah. People around me, friends and acquaintances, I have reached out to them. Some of these have family in, in Turkey. And um, luckily, they were mostly fine. One of the had like a sister who came from a village that got completely destroyed, but is fine herself. Okay. Yeah, it's pretty heavy to see that it like it basically concerns everyone, you know? Yeah, yeah. I would say without having proof of it, I would say every European knows someone who knows someone who lost someone in Turkey yeah. during the earthquake. And that's that's horrific. Yeah, it is really. And of course, reports are now beginning to emerge that there are problems with the buildings, mm -hmm. that some buildings were not built as to specification. And that's not just a conspiracy theory, I think, because 
there was even formal ways to get around it. You could pay a fine instead of building the house properly when it was... And that was official, that we know that that's the case. And that's not how things should work. You shouldn't mm-hmm. be able to pay your way out of taking, making sure that people are okay. So that's exactly. really, really, really bad. I'm sure we will hear more about that mm-hmm. uh, later on. Yeah. Mm. But yeah, exactly. More about it Yeah. next, uh, in the following. <laughs> yes, but Annika, 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 you have to tell me. Uh, you did something on Monday for the first time. I think you were supposed to anyway. Tell us yes, about that. I did, I did. It was amazing. Ooh. It's uh, Wissenschaft trifft Freundschaft. And you pronounced it completely correct. <laughs> I, I, I don't think so, but okay, thank <laughs> oh, you. Oh, you did. It, it sounded pretty much like what I just did. <laughs> so mm. we did a good job. Too kind. So that, of course, means science meets friends or friendship. It's a new format initiated by Lydia Benecke, mm-hmm. who we have been wanting for the show since... Probably at least since I joined. <laughs> I don't think we have mentioned someone as a potential guest so many times on yeah. the show as Lydia Benecke. We're I, just teasing I now, our yeah, listeners. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm intrigued now as well. <laughs> but but anyway, back to this uh, WTF. I think that's a good uh, acronym for it mm-hmm. or uh, abbreviation. Mm-hmm. So what exactly is it? Something on Twitch. Is it recorded? Can you see it afterwards? Is it only live? Tell us. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a talk on Twitch together with Bernd Harder, Holm Hümmler and as I said Lydia Benecke and always like special guests. So like we are the core team so to say and mm-hmm. then special guests regarding the topics. So next time we will talk about Satanic Panic. Um, mm. This will be on the 27th. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was it was just a lot of fun. And it will come out as a recording on, I think, on Twitch, on YouTube, and it will also eventually be uploaded as a podcast. Okay, very good. So, so is yeah. this uh, always on Mondays, right? It's is always on Mondays, every every second Monday. Every um, second Monday. It's not set into stone that it's every second Monday, but yeah, that's basically It's an ambition, plan. yeah. <laughs> and yeah, that's the plan, and yeah, and it's in German, I should add. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, I think with the name like that, I think we all yeah. assume. <laughs> it's a very interesting initiative, and I hope you get a lot of uh, viewers. Yeah, I hope so too. It um, it was definitely a lot of fun. So, yeah, let's just keep our fingers crossed because we know that uh, that doesn't work uh, beyond placebo effect. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But you promised, and I said so last week. But I put words in your mouth. You have promised that you would still do this show as well. Yeah, as I'm not, much I'm as not cheating on you guys. <laughs> very good. Very good. Then it's fine. <laughs> you are my first love. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> it is actually Valentine's Day when we're recording this. So, or it was oh, it yesterday? It was yesterday. It was I'm, yesterday. I'm very so. sorry to disappoint you. <laughs> All right. Yeah, but I think there's a cool day coming up. So maybe we will talk about this week in skeptical history, also called Twish. Yes, I will be your Andrash for today because we didn't mention he's not here, but you you noticed he wanted to, but he, he had a poor internet connection, so it wasn't possible. Anyway, so I will be your Andrash for today. I will do the <laughs> twish, and I think with a topic that would be just perfect for Andrash because it's about space, and I think he knows this story, but I will tell it since he's not here. On Saturday, it is Pluto Day. Ooh. On 18th of February, way back in 1930, Pluto was discovered 
And I think uh, I think most of us have gotten over by now that Pluto was demoted to a dwarf planet. So let's not go into that. It's a thing. It's a big ball in space. It's it's cold and far away, and we all love it anyway, regardless of what we call it. Instead, I want to dig into how it was detected and found because it was a long and bumpy road. Already in the 1840s, astronomers were speculating that something was pulling the planet of Uranus a little bit out of course. And you don't want anything unknown pulling Uranus, so that's not acceptable. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry for that pun. It had to be said, and now we can leave it behind. Uh, Anyway... There was. The reason they were talking about this is that there were observations that indicated there may be some other planet out there, and maybe some suggested that would be even more than one. In 1846, Johann Gottfried Galle, would you say that? He was German, so is it Galle? I would guess so, yeah. Johann Gottfried Galle and his uh, assistant Heinrich Darest, which sounds like a bit French, but they were both German, mm-hmm. they discovered uh, Neptune after being pointed in the right direction by a French mathematician that was called Urbain Le Verrier. But there was still a problem, because both Neptune and Uranus Uranus, were still not moving exactly as predicted. And throughout the rest of the 1800s, people were trying to figure out what was going on. How many planets are there out there, and what are they doing? So that started off the search for the mystical planet X, so named by a guy called Percival Lowell. He was an American. If listeners have very, very good memory, they may recall this guy from episode 162. So that's in 2019. Jelena talked about the infamous canals on Mars, Mm -hmm. which are, of course, not there, we know. But Lowell was the guy who invested all of his credibility. It wasn't his idea, but he invested all his credibility into finding these canals. But when they turned out to be not a thing, he needed a new project, something to restore his reputation. So he became determined to find this mystical planet X to find out what was going on with these other two planets. He calculated that planet X was about seven times the size of the Earth and about half the size of Neptune. So already there something is off, because that doesn't fit the description of Pluto. After decades of trying, though, Lowell actually died unexpectedly in 1916. So he had done this for a long time, and he hadn't found his darling planet X. There was another guy called William Pickering, who was actually friendly with um, Lowell and helped Lowell to found the Lowell Observatory. He was now looking for the new planet. He called it Planet O, because I guess that would make it easier (laughs) to find it. I don't know. And actually, he managed to capture images of Pluto in 1919, but he didn't know because it wasn't noticed until years later when they looked again at the plates. Or well, I guess they were plates back then, the, the photographs. So he did photograph Pluto, <laughs> but he didn't yeah. know it and he didn't discover it either. But after a couple of years of disruption after Lowell's death, the Lowell Observatory got back on the job. And finally, on the 18th of February 1930, so that's 90 years after the first search, which actually found Neptune, but it's a long time they've been at it by this time. There was a young guy called Clyde Tombaugh who had been given the task of looking over a number of images 
and he found a little moving speck. Well, it wasn't moving, but he had two different plates and he saw that the speck was moving between the two different photographs. And that was Pluto. So Planet X was found. Or was it? Because, as I mentioned before, <laughs> it turns out that Pluto is much too small to explain the anomalies in the orbits of Uranus and uh, Neptune. And <laughs> to some extent, the mystery lived on for years after this. It wasn't actually until in the early 1990s when astronomers analyzed data from the 1989 Voyager 2 flyby of Neptune that the story of Planet X came to rest because Voyager 2 data showed that Neptune's mass was about half a percent less than previously thought. And with that new measurement in the calculations, all the anomalies disappeared. It was all for nothing. There was never a need for Planet X, but we did find Pluto. And it's a fun story, I think. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. And I always had to giggle when, like, when you said Uranus again. <laughs> we will never grow up. No, um, we, we shouldn't. <laughs> and yeah, it's very hard for me to find a segue now from Uranus <laughs> to the next segment. Uh, that doesn't involve <laughs> horrific things. So I will just ask you, Pontus, if there's something to poke the Pope. Actually, I think we're going to give Frankie a rest this week. I will be a little bit mean to everybody and just tease you and say there was something with elephants involved. But I'm not going to talk about it because Ooh. it was much less interesting than it sounds. <laughs> and you can look it up. <laughs> so uh, nothing really happened <laughs> much with Frankie. I had a few topics that I sort of prepared, but then I think, ah, let's skip it. Let's move on to other things. Okay, thank you, Pontus, mm -hmm. for this statement and the <laughs> teasing, <laughs> the sneak peek, so to say. And that means we are going over to the news. Right, so back to a topic that I have covered many, many times before. I wonder if people still remember Paolo Macchiarini. Do you remember him, Annika? I remember his, his name, definitely. He yeah. was the Italian surgeon who operated on at least eight patients. Actually, operated on more patients. But out of the eight in question, seven died. The story began over 10 years ago, almost 15 years ago. And it led to a big scandal. It was a big scandal at the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm, where uh, the board of the directors had to leave their... their they got fired, basically. And there were several cases of fraud discovered by Macchiarini. And, of course, the board had to go because they had defended him and, and employed him in the first place. Macchiarini's claim to fame or infamy was that he, in the laboratory, had successfully replaced the tracheas of mice. And if people don't know, the trachea is... Basically, the inside of the throat, uh, of, not a physician, so something there. So it's in the throat, and people can have problems with that part of their body, and then they can't mm -hmm. breathe. So it's very, very serious. And he said he could do this in mice. He had done so, he said, with artificial plastic tracheas who were, that were covered in stem cells. And that prevented them from being, being rejected by the host. So based on this research which later was proven to be false. He, that was fraudulent. He had never successfully done this. He did the same operation on eight people. And it was an absolute failure and a tragedy. A terrible story. 
Amazingly, he today still has studies published in medical journals, even after GSO scandals. And it's not just the thing I told about before. There are other scandals surrounding this guy as well. This week, one more study of Macchiarini's were grudgingly not retracted, but at least given to quote-unquote expressions of concern by The Lancet, where it was published. The Lancet, the, the famous uh, medical mm-hmm. journal. And the, the paper in question describes the first trachea transplant to use, using stem cells that uh, Macchiarini did way back in 2008. It was done in Barcelona, so this was before he came to Karolinska, and the patient was a woman who was named uh, Claudia Castillo. She survived the surgery, and she's still alive. Although she did have to have mm-hmm. other surgery after, including uh, removing her left lung. <laughs> she went ahead with this surgery to avoid having the left lung. So it was a failure in, in that respect. She was lucky, though, because Macarini hadn't yet come up with a plastic tracheas at this point. He used a donated one. but And, and he co- did cover it in stem cells from Claudia's own body. I don't know if that helped, but... At least it sort of worked, and she's still alive today, as I said. The thing is that Macchiarini lied to her to get her to agree to this, I will call it, an experiment. Among other things, he showed her pigs in in real life. He really brought her to the pigs. And he said that, I have (laughs) operated on these pigs, and this proves that they it works and they are running around and they look happy and, and Claudio agreed they said they, they really did look happy and and lively however what Macarini didn't say to her was that he had not replaced their tracheas he had inserted a small piece of decellularized trachea under the skin of their hindquarters just to see if they if, uh. if it would get infected and it was infected so the pigs were fine, I guess they fixed the infection, but it was not at all what he had her no. believe. Anyway, long story short, the paper that Macchiarini then published to describe this surgery on Claudio Castillo has now, after many years of criticism, received two formal, as I said, expressions of concern, because it describes this procedure with Claudio as a big, huge success. And it has been cited 1,800 times. But still, to this day, it has not been retracted by The Lancet. It's just got a... If you go into it at PubMed, you, you can see it. And mm-hmm. it's, there's a little thing. We have expressions of concern. and But then if you pay, I guess, you can read the whole thing. Even in the abstract, it still says what a fantastic success this operation was. Yeah. So he, he he's a douchebag, Macchiarini. <laughs> the story never seems to end. He's actually on probation at the moment, but he is doing surgery in Spain. He, he was he declined to comment this la- latest development. He said, "I'm I'm operating. I'm too busy." Somebody should take away his scalpel. I think. Unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Someone should also be always skeptical <laughs> because there are a lot of false images shared online about the earthquake in Turkey. I said in the beginning that we will still talk oh. about the earthquake. Yeah, it's it's interesting how quickly false pictures turn up again. We know that from when the war in Ukraine began, um, that there were 
this mystical pilot, for example. Mm. Like we know that there was immediately false pictures turning up and some from computer games and stuff. Here we don't have a computer game um, footage taken. I as, guess there's uh, <laughs> not too many computer games about earthquakes. Otherwise, there would yeah, have been. Yeah, exactly. It's um. But it's very often um, from other um, disaster sites. So, for example, there's um, a tweet about the explosion of a nuclear power plant in Turkey. And no, that was actually from Beirut in August 2020. Or a collapse of a building that was not Turkey again, that was in Florida (laughs) in June 2021. Or a tsunami hitting the coast, which was claimed also to be in Turkey. But this one was actually in Indonesia from 2018. So I'm actually really, really proud of fact-checking people who can say like, oh no, that's actually from there. Or the scaffolding collapse that was from Japan in 2016. And so on and so on. So we there are like so many pictures. And with this, we just can see like, yes, there is footage from Turkey, obviously. But there's also pictures that are taken from completely different sites. And this shows us, again, it's, it's important yeah. to stay skeptical. So, so why, what is the reason for doing this? Is it to just get clicks or likes or whatever? I don't understand the motivation of these people. And it is Me actually neither. nowadays very easy to discover. You just yeah. do a reverse search mm-hmm. on image for, of, of, yeah, of the image exactly. on Google and you will find the original mm-hmm. very quickly. So uh, mm-hmm. it's sort of pointless. And mm-hmm. if you do it just yeah. to get, I don't understand. I don't, I cannot understand that motivation. No, me neither. But I think I would, I'm also a person, even if something would happen around me, I wouldn't share it. I would probably only share it, for example, if I would be looking for someone. But apart yeah. from that, people always say like, yeah, don't share that because uh, it will either help, for example, if there's a, a shooting or so, it will help the wrong people if you share that online. Or it's just like, almost like, I, I know that sounds very graphic, but like almost bathing in the in the sufferance of other people, you know? Yeah. Yes. And I'm like, no, I don't want to do that. So it could be click for clicks, but I can't really tell you the intention behind that. I, I can well, do some research about that, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but it, it's mm-hmm. still, it's so easy yeah. to debunk. Hmm. All right. So, total change of topic here. One of the <laughs> other of my favorite topics. From time to time, I have expressed my concern with Swedish free schools. Mostly, I'm concerned by the religious ones, mm-hmm. because I f- feel that religion has no place whatsoever in education. And the former Swedish social democratic-led government was approaching my point of view, actually. They were making it harder and harder for private schools or free schools. But as people may be aware, we got another right-wing government in September, which I have also talked about. Now, one of the things that the former government had going was an inquiry into how to treat freedom of information requests for private schools. Because if, if you're a public school, you're covered in regulations that says that all public activities are sort of public. And then you, you, can, you can make these FOIA requests, as they call it. Uh, not in Sweden, actually, but that's how people remember that. I think Freedom of Information Act is, I think, is an, is an American thing. But you can do a FOIA request and just find out what's going on within 
a public organization or a school or the government even. So, so the the private schools were exempt from this uh, rules, these rules, and that was what the former government wanted to change. But the new government has now stopped the inquiry from going forward and deliver their results just a few weeks or maybe a month before they were scheduled to be ready. They don't want to hear it anymore. And instead, they have decided that uh, there will be no changes to the rules. Uh, the official reason mm-hmm. is that... Uh, This new government feels that it would be too much of a burden for private schools to handle this, especially for the smaller schools, which sounds sort of reasonable. And and many private schools are small, and they maybe don't have the resources, the time to answer a lot of questions like that. But the irony is that it's mainly the large school groups, the, the big ones, and their representatives who have opposed these new suggestions. Uh, representatives of the small independent schools have welcomed the change and said that they don't want to be treated differently from another school. Schools are schools, they say. We we were going to do whatever the other schools have to do. So uh, the right-wing government is going to right-wing things and uh, to cater for large private school groups. And they've already paid for this inquiry, for this investigation, mm-hmm. it's almost there. Why not just wait a couple of more weeks and hear what they have to say? But no, they, they, they have made up their minds already and they don't want to hear it. I'm not very happy with this. This will make it harder to find misconduct in schools driven by religious organizations. Other misconduct as well, but this is where I think my, my focus is really. But uh, because it's the religious schools that really bend the rules. Mm-hmm. They say that they are... Because you, you can't preach in school. You can't do that. You can teach about religion, but you can't preach. But that's very hard to... It's yeah. a fine line to, to draw. And the only way to monitor that these some of these very, very mm-hmm. fundamentalist religious organizations don't do that I mean, they do it. Let's let's be yeah, honest. Yeah. We know that they're doing they do it, it. <laughs> but but now it's harder to. In find Germany, there's actually a rule they call Beutelsbacher Konsens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there we go. Or in English, Beutelsbach Consensus, um, and it's a <laughs> it's a minimum standard for preaching or like non-preaching in school. How is it enforced? I mean, how how um, do you know? Uh, it's pretty much. I think you can say if you um, infringe on it. You can yeah. say, oh, that's not okay, but that's not really a rule. It's more that they teach that a lot. I got taught about this a lot during my studies, like my degree and teacher and training time. So like they, yeah. they enforce it through making the teachers aware of it. And Yeah, but you're a good guy. Yeah. You, you know, <laughs> if you have a religious organization mm-hmm. who wants to create a yes, school, of they're, course. they're probably mm-hmm. not preaching a lot to other religious groups. Yeah. They have their core group of parents who wants this to happen. So who who is going to blow the exactly. whistle? And also yeah. like this Beutelsbach consensus is also for democratic reasons for how to have a student who can who can judge independently. But someone who wants to teach someone regi- like religiously uh, doesn't really want someone who has their own judgment anyways, you know? No, that's very true. I mean, re- most religions don't want you to question the religion. Mm-hmm. That's not part of it. That's bad for business. Mm-hmm. So yeah, uh, we can we can see how far away these schools are from democracy even, you know? <laughs> yes. Hmm. I mean, it really is a, a part of a 
it should be anyway. Mm-hmm. And I think officially it is, yeah. but it's hard to enforce. There's a human right to be born, or should be at least, mm-hmm. be born into the world and then make up your mind whether you want to be religious or not mm-hmm. when you are old enough to make that judgment. Yes. But if you preach to three-year-old people, three-year-old people don't have that sense of questioning everything. And they don't, uh, well, they are brainwashed from mm-hmm. birth, really. Mm. Yeah. I'll talk more about a school teacher later. <laughs> um, but now I want to talk about a bad decision in my regard. <laughs> okay. There's a publishing house, Gruner and Jahr, that owns a lot of magazines in Germany. Mm-hmm. And the thing is that they just said that they are stopping to produce a lot of magazines. And I was almost tempted to put this in as really wrong because mm-hmm. it's really wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the thing is like they maybe don't make the most money because they kind of fell short of the digitalization. <laughs> so what what kind of, of magazines are we talking about? Uh, they do magazines like, and that's why it's, it's uh, skeptically relevant, like science communicational magazines. For example, Geo Epoche, Geo Wissen, um, Eltern, which is a pretty much scientific standpoint for parents, like for parenting. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, but as I said, also Geo Wissen, Geo Epoche. They're basically stopping um, all of these magazines and also firing up over 700 people. <laughs> and wow. not only will it mean workless people, workless journalists, no less, very good journalists, mm. it will also mean a poorer magazine landscape, so to say, and a mm. lot less education in that. Yeah, I, I, I understand. So I often say that I'm a finance guy, so let me put on my finance hat and say that... It, I think the the consequences of this is are really bad, but can you put that on a private company to continue to publish papers that nobody well that not enough people are buying just because of their good heart they're in the business of making money like everybody else yes. so it's hard to put that responsibility on a private company I think um yes, of course you're right, and I think if it would be important enough for the general public then the general public slash the state would subsidize the magazines yeah. um, to continue them so that's one th- one side the other side is that they are continuing a few other magazines but those are basically non-educational <laughs> right so I guess the public is wrong then. The public should be interested in these yeah, other mag- yeah. magazines. And, and like, of uh, course, I have to. I have to confess too. Like, I never bought this, these magazines. You're one. Of, you're part I'm of the problem. I'm one of them. Then. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> because I don't read magazines at all. <laughs> Not a boomer. You get all your information on TikTok nowadays. TikTok, yeah. I get my my information through dances. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but but it is a problem. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're joking, but yeah. people are getting a lot of their information from social media. Mm-hmm. I get a lot of my yeah. information from social media, mostly from my fellow skeptics mm-hmm. who share yeah. important exactly. news that way. But <laughs> it is it is yeah. changing. It's like the, the last time I bought a magazine was probably when I was maybe like twenty three or so. You know, mm. and then and even then I maybe did it like I don't know months every two months. So, yeah, that's right. I, yeah. I seldom buy magazines mm-hmm. myself. So I, I can mm-hmm. also understand them. It's just a bit sad. It is sad, <laughs> yeah. We need more science communication, exactly. not less. Exactly. That's exactly it. All right. Yeah. 
So that was it with the news. And mm -hmm. our listeners know that now we're finding out who has been really wrong this week. And I pretty much already said who I'm talking about. Uh, regular listeners might even know the name. Um, this has been sent in by our listener, Michael. Mm -hmm. And um, Thank you, Michael. Yes, exactly. And I'm, of course, talking about infamous teacher Enoch Burke. Enoch Burke? Enoch Burke, yeah. I talked about yeah. him uh, several times. I think he already even got really wrong, if I'm not wrong. <laughs> 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 and uh, yeah, Enoch Burke is a teacher from Ireland. And he was sacked and also ha has been taken in front of the high court to stay away from school. Because he has refused to address a trans student by their preferred pronouns and name. Mm. Um, he claims transgenderism goes against his beliefs. So he's refusing to do that and turning up in school again and again and again and again. Even after he was fired? Yeah, he was fired. And he even spent 108 days in Mountjoy prison. <laughs> so yeah like he, he, even that you know um and now you you guessed it uh, he turned up in school again which means his fine is now at 8400 euro mm -hmm. so he's getting fined for that but i guess um he doesn't care he wants fanatism, to be there he exactly. wants to be his he wants to big it and uh, it wor it's worth it exactly that yeah he w probably wants to show um she w he wants to give an example Mm. And yeah, he probably in his mind he has to do it for his beliefs and, and because he's so amazing. So yeah, I don't want to give him more attention than necessary, but I think you would probably agree with me that he definitely deserves this week's prize for being really wrong. Yes, and every time he shows up for school again, we will give him another award. Yes. <laughs> Again and again and again. <laughs> he may be running for uh, for some sort of record here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that could happen. Stupid guy. <laughs> mm. So that was it for the show. Mm -hmm. And um, thank you, Pontus. Thank you. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in week after week. But I don't want to let anyone go without a quote. And this week's quote is by Max Planck. I already had a quote from him a few episodes ago, but he's so so good a quotee that I'm <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that I wanted to quote him again. Mm -hmm. He was a German physicist, lived from 1858 until 1947, and he said, "Quote: When you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change." End Ooh. quote. <laughs> That's very deep. That's it is. probably something uh, quantum physics. Uh, I know I don't know a lot about physics, but I know that the Planck length is is that the smallest theoretically the smallest measure of length that there is. I don't know how that can be, but Oh, I'm not Andras, uh, don't ask me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let, let, let. <laughs> Let's not speculate. It's small. Exactly. Plank length is exactly. very, very small. But it, I, I have to say this quote is so nice because it's so deep. And so 
But you yeah. can also generalize it so well. So like you could even, yeah. um, for example, in history teaching or in debates about history and the discourse about history, you always say every present time asks their own questions to the past. So that's why we all still having research in history. Because, for example, when feminism came around, we asked a lot of different questions to the quotes, to the sources we had. Because we had a different presence yeah. time. And this is like basically what he says here. When you change the way you look at it, then you also change what you're looking at. You can use it for yeah. so many for so many things in science and um, and in yeah. your life. So it's it's amazing. And uh, yeah, thank you, Max Planck, for this. But keep uh, looking. <laughs> yeah, but keep looking. So keep don't looking, be afraid yes. to change the things you're looking at. Keep your eyes open and your brain skeptical. Keep... <laughs> right. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> Good. Yeah, but that was really it. Thank you again. And until next week, goodbye. Hello. Tschüss. Wieslat. <laughs>